Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. I've had my afternoon cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get to it. i got to catch up from this morning and do tonight's message. So uh, welcome to you there on Facebook, on Twitter at HBC Tullahoma, YouTube at Highland Baptist Tullahoma, and then our phone live streaming. Be sure to share, to like, to heart. Uh, do all those things you need to there. Subscribe to YouTube. That way you'll always get those notifications. If you want the phone live streaming number, call us at the church office at 931-455-0645, and we'll be glad to get that number for you. Uh, while you're there at home, if you're online, go to our church website at HighlandBaptistChurch.com. It's under the info tab. We mentioned that this morning. You can get your uh, bulletin uh, there for this week downloaded. Upcoming activities are in that. We've got a lot of things upcoming with Awana. Uh, also, we are still in need of some people to help us with uh, the meals on Wednesday night. So uh, if you'd be interested in helping us kind of coordinate that, we'd be glad to have you help us. And we've also got our children's worship bulletins that are there under that same link. So be sure and get those if you're here in person and you need them there in this windowsill uh, over here. And then while you're there on the church website, also go to the far right hand side, click the Give Online tab. You can do your online giving. You can also do this in person with your uh, offering envelopes. Put them in the offering plate uh, before you leave uh, tonight. And then don't forget too, if you're uh, if you are a guest with us, you can fill out one of these uh, visitor cards. You can also do that with the QR code that's on there. And our members, we want to encourage you still pick up one of these if you haven't. They're in those little holders. I think that one may be about empty on that side, but there's one on each side and at the back. Uh, be sure to pick up that connection card so we can get that current information from you, as well as so you can check if you want those notifications or not when we have special uh, events or special uh, situations with services that you may want information on, uh, as well as the prayer requests that are on there. So that's all I have. Brother Mike, let you go. I asked Brother Jim earlier if he wanted me to knock out a verse that we had, had planned, and he said, no. I knew he had a lot to say. I now know why he can say a lot. He's had a lot more coffee today. So, so let's sing 285, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. Miss Pat. Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Where? 
Thank you, Brother Mike. My wife said, well, you know you got to slow down for some of us. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I love our Keurig coffee machine because there's a little button on the top that you can push stronger, and that's what I did. <laughs> so, it's a stronger cup of coffee uh, this afternoon than normal. Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 22, uh, and we're going to go all the way through verse 38. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off from this morning and looking at who is Jesus. Uh, and in that part, we were looking at what Jesus does. And we said there's two parts to that section uh, that we were looking at this morning. There's about what Jesus does and then who Jesus is. And they both are intricately entwined together in looking at what happens in both. So we've already looked at the unequaled power of Jesus' healing in verse 22. We've seen the unusual place of Jesus' healing as it's there in Bethsaida. And so we want to come tonight to the unique procedure of Jesus' healing, the unique procedure of Jesus' healing. So let's stand as we read God's Word in honor of His Word. We're going to be reading verse 23 down through verse 26. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your grace and mercy tonight. We thank you for your word, and ask, Lord, that you would indeed speak to us through these passages again tonight. To help us, Lord, to realize who Jesus is, is intricately entwined to what he does. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to be uh, faithful in our walk with you, that we might experience uh, all of Christ within us, experiencing the Holy Spirit's power and drawing closer to you. And, Lord, as we draw closer to you, uh, Father, I pray that you will draw closer to us. Help us, Lord, to, to put aside all the cares and the distractions and the burdens, the things that may distract us even tonight to listen to your voice, to hear what you have to say to us. And Father, I pray that you'll do an awesome work in our hearts and our lives as we continue this walk through looking at the life of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So in reading those verses and in what we saw this morning, we saw that Jesus doesn't heal this man immediately. Many times that's what we see. Uh, Jesus, there, Jesus is walking along through a crowd and there's a woman who reaches out and touches his garment. Immediately she's healed. Uh, there's other times that individuals come to Jesus and they're begging him, please heal my child, heal uh, this individual uh, that, I've, that I've brought to you. And, and immediately Jesus speaks the word and they're healed. Uh, we read that over and over that at that same hour this person was healed. Well, here was this individual, this man, and, and he doesn't heal this man immediately, but he heals him in stages. And there doesn't seem, you know, from our perspective, if you were reading this or even seeing what was happening, I mean, you, if you were there, you would have seen Jesus already heal people who were deaf, heal people who were blind, people to raise up from their beds who hadn't been able to walk and to, to leap and to run. You've already seen that. But now Jesus, uh, he, he takes some spit and spittle and he takes his hands and he puts them on this man's eyes to bring healing to him. But it's not perfect. It's not complete. It doesn't seem to be anything Jesus can't do, but not this time. This time it almost seems like Jesus can't heal this man. But all through his ministry, Jesus has healed people. He would heal them merely by saying the word, letting them touch him or, or he was healed, uh, he healed people by uh, him touching them. The lame walked, the deaf heard, the dumb spoke. All were healed immediately, but not this time. After the first touch, it's close, but it's not real impressive. It's kind of like going to the eye doctor and getting a pair of glasses that are kind of good. Uh, you, you can kind of see out of them. That's okay, but it's not really what you were expecting. If you really get glasses from, from the optometrist, you would expect to see perfectly immediately. But this guy doesn't see perfectly immediately. It takes Jesus two times uh, to, to put his hands on this man to heal this guy. Jesus never had to do that before. And, you know, nobody's ever had to be touched twice uh, by Jesus. So why does this man need to be touched twice? I mean, when you look at it, was Jesus off his game? Did he not have the power enough to heal this man? Uh, did he get up off the wrong side of the bed? Had he not had his cup of coffee? <laughs> no. Notice the first touch. 
The first touch is there in verse 23 and 24. Jesus cared about this man and where he was and his beliefs. And so that's why Jesus the first time uses saliva. You don't see that often that Jesus does something uh, like that. Uh, usually he just speaks the word or he touches an individual and they're healed. But this time he takes some spit and he puts it on this man's eyes. That's unusual in and of itself, but notice what he did here is he places that saliva on this man's eyes and he puts his hands on this man's eyes. The touch of both of his hands would mean so much more than just the spoken word. And that touch would begin to stir the faith of this man more readily. Because remember what we talked about this morning, where this man had been. He had been in Bethsaida, and he really had been there too long. Uh, they had been, the, the, the way they approached things and the way they thought about Jesus had begun to influence him, and, and he, his focus wasn't really on Jesus. In fact, it was his friends that were focused on Jesus. And it's almost like they were saying, come on, man, just come with us. Come to Jesus and he can take care of you. And it's almost as if this man begrudgingly comes. And then Jesus has to take him outside the city to get him out of that place of unbelief, that place of doubt. Jesus cared enough about this man because the point is this that we notice here is that Jesus cared for this man, and so he began where this man was in his beliefs, and he leads him into the essential belief that healing comes through the Lord himself, through his touch. And so Jesus cared enough to see after this man and to keep uh, showing that, that love and that grace and that mercy to this man. So far as is known, this is the only miracle that we know of in the Bible that took place in stages. Uh, Jesus had asked uh, the man if he saw anything. And the man replies that he, I, I see people, I see something that looks like people, but it's, it looks like trees and it looks like they're walking. And so this man wasn't completely healed. He, he's seeing only faintly, only dimly. His eyes are foggy. He sees these objects with, uh, with bodies or trunks like trees, and, and yet they're walking like people. And he, Jesus asked him if he saw anything for several reasons. One of the reasons he asked him if he saw anything was as a reinforcement to this blind man. It was also as a rebuke to the disciples because he says to the disciples uh, before and even later, do you have, eye, you have eyes and you can't even see the things that are happening spiritually. And it's also a reminder to us that God can do whatever he wants the way he wants. He can heal somebody instantly. He can heal somebody in stages or in steps. Or he can decide, not right yet. Not, not right yet. Or he may decide, no, that's not a part of my plan. The ultimate healing may be for that person uh, to be in, in heaven uh, with him, where they have that perfect, complete body. So, so that's the first touch. Jesus begins right where he's at. Because in those days, saliva was seen to, to have some kind of healing properties within it. And so that's what that man's beliefs were. And so that's why Jesus starts where he does. The second touch, so he's moved him from, from where he was a little bit closer to faith. And, and then when this second touch happens, notice verse 25 there again. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he he saw everything clearly. 
And so uh, this man's sight was restored and he saw clearly why. Why did Jesus heal this man in stages? Apparently, this man's faith, as we said, because of the influence of the people of Bethsaida, was weakened and needed to be strengthened step by step. He needed to be touched more than once. Sometimes people are so far from God that they need more than one touch to move them closer to God. Just as we talked about with our mission trip, it may take, and on average, from what we've seen through studies for a person to come to faith, uh, in, in especially in, in new work areas, it takes about 40 times. It takes either 40 individuals or, or, or individuals connecting with that person 40 times, showing the love of God before they finally begin to open up and to, to receive what you're having to say to them about Jesus. And so sometimes people are so far from God that they need more than one touch to bring them to the place of ultimate, the ultimate healing for their soul. At the beginning, this blind man, he just goes along with his friends. And, and what needed to happen is he needed to have a greater hope, a greater desire himself for Jesus to heal him. In other words, it had to be genuine in his own heart. And that seems to be indicated by the, by the silence in asking Jesus to touch him. He never asked Jesus to touch him. He never asked Jesus for healing. That was all on his friends. And so the point is this, Jesus though cared enough to keep after this man in, in his need. He didn't ignore this man. He didn't turn from him just because his faith was weak. Uh, he saw those friends, saw they had faith, so they had already demonstrated faith in that man's life. Jesus touches him the first time. That's another touch of bringing this man closer to faith. And then the second time that he does it. You know, not everybody comes to faith in Christ immediately. You know, sometimes it takes us years in talking to friends and talking to family members and, 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 and building those relationships with them uh, that we begin to earn that, that, that respect from them to share and they begin to uh, believe about what we're telling them about the truth of Jesus Christ. The crucial point for us as the church is this, is that we ought to care enough to keep after people in their needs. We, we have to care enough to keep on witnessing, to keep on ministering, to keep on loving, even when nothing is reciprocated from them. Notice the hope for this man in our story. The realization of this hope comes in the second touch of Jesus. It was this touch that made him see distinctly. Some of us today need that kind of a second touch. You know, someone once said, the first touch gives sight, the second touch gives clarity. The first touch gives life, the second touch gives meaning to that life. The first touch gives hearing, the second gives understanding. You know, there are some who would say, though, I don't need that second touch. I'm good just like I am. Well, maybe. Uh, for, for you, a second, though, or a third, or a fourth, or more uh, is what you may need because you still have rivers of, uh, of doubt to cross and battles to fight and mountains to climb, and you can't do it, and you don't want to do it alone. And so it sometimes takes more touches than just the two that it took this man. You know, the hope of today is the touch of Jesus and the first touch and the second touch and those ongoing touches. And so we just have to keep reaching out and touching people with the gospel, touching them with the love of Jesus Christ, having that ongoing touch. But Jesus did all of this to lead his disciples to understand who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Well, let's look at verse 27 through verse 30. Most people 
don't object to the idea of Jesus being a deliverer or being a savior or being a provider or even a protector. But what most people want is a Jesus who fits into their lifestyle. A Jesus who fits what they want to do. Uh, they, they, want, they want to eat and drink and be merry, have shelter over their heads, have, have their urges satisfied. They want the good things of this world. And if Jesus can give them those things and them still be able to do the things they want to do, then they're ready and willing to accept Jesus. And so Jesus deliberately here sets out to make sure that his disciples see him as God's Messiah, not as man's Messiah. So he asks a question as we come to verse 27 and 28. We see the public opinion about Jesus' identity. The public opinion about Jesus' identity. Look at verse 27 and verse 28. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And, and so Jesus here leaves Bethsaida. Uh, he's traveling around the towns of Caesarea Philippi. He's traveling along some road between those towns. And he asks the biggest question of life, the question that determines our eternal destiny. Who do people say that I am? Now most people say or, or saw Jesus only as a great man. A man who was highly esteemed, a, a man who was respected. He was considered one of the greatest men. But, but note a crucial point. Those professions weren't only true, they were very dangerous. They contained, if you will, some half-truths, and people were deceived and misled by them. Some said Jesus was John the Baptist. And so what they were doing there is that they were saying that Jesus uh, was a great person of, of righteousness, a, a person that was willing to be even martyred for his faith uh, like John the Baptist was. You know, Herod and others thought that. Uh, when he heard of Jesus' miraculous works, uh, you remember when he, after he had beheaded John the Baptist, he thought, oh my goodness, John the Baptist has come back in this person of this, of this Jesus, uh, and I'm in trouble. And so he thought either John had been revived or else his spirit was indwelling the person of Jesus. And so when some looked at Jesus and some looked at his ministry, they thought Jesus was not the Messiah himself, but the promised forerunner of the Messiah, which is what John the Baptist was. Some said Jesus was Elijah. In other words, they were professing Jesus to be a great prophet, to be the greatest prophet and teacher of all time because Elijah was a great prophet of his day. When you go back to the Old Testament, he is one of the prophets that stands out to us, has one of the greatest books of prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Elijah. There, or when you see about Elijah in the book of Kings there. And so Elijah here, he was, he was a great prophet. He was a great man of God, a great teacher. And so some said, well, he's Elijah. Some said Jesus was one of the other prophets. Uh, maybe he's like Isaiah, or maybe he's like Jeremiah. Uh, they professed Jesus to be a great prophet uh, who was sent for their day, sent for their time. He was thought to be one of the great prophets who maybe had been brought back to life and, or, or one in whom their spirit dwelt in. Here's what Napoleon said about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. That sounds good. 
But here's what he goes on to say. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. That still sounds good. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, Napoleon, have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. In other words, Napoleon saw Jesus as just a great man that people were willing to follow and willing to die for. H.G. Wells, uh, who was a great historian, said this. He said, I'm a historian and I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Maybe that's where you are. You know, that's good, and I'm glad you see that, that he's a good man and that he's the center of history, but that's not enough. It's not enough to, to have a man who's respected by everyone, a, a man who we might say is a cut above all the others, maybe on the same level as Kennedy or Lincoln or, or John the Baptist or Elijah or the prophets. All of that may be commendable, but that's not enough. And so notice what goes on now in verse 29 and verse 30 when we see Peter's opinion about Jesus' identity. Peter's opinion about Jesus' identity. Verse 29. And he asked them, speaking of the disciples, he's already asked who do people say that I am. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So notice there in verse, in verse 29, he asks them. Now that, sometimes we, we don't get the full meaning of a, or the emphasis of a word when we read it in our English language, but when you go back to the Greek and you look at it in its context there in its syntax, that word asked means to question, and it's in the imperfect tense, which means Jesus kept on asking wasn't just a one-time asking. He keeps on asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, John? Who do you say that I am, Peter? Who do you say that I am, Bartholomew? Who do you say that I am? And he asked them all, who do you say that I am? The question is also in the emphatic in the Greek. But who do you say that I am? In other words, the answer to the question is critical. It's not just a rhetorical question. It's a, it's a question that is critical. It's all important. The answer determines a person's eternal destiny. And so Peter answers immediately. He says, you are the Christ. Now, get that word Christ there and understand what's embodied in that word. Uh, the, the Christ it means the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. Christ is not his name. That's his title. Everything in Mark, in his gospel, has been leading up to this point. All the miracles that we've seen so far, all the teaching of Jesus, all his life, all of this was leading up to this point. And, and, and when we think about it, was Peter all the way home with his understanding of Christ? No. But his blindness was beginning to fade away. And so when you put these two stories side by side, you begin to see something astounding. Jesus healed the physical blindness, but he also heals the spiritual blindness. Some today still view Jesus as a good teacher. 
as a good man that we can learn from his teachings, but nothing more. And a lot of the world believes that way about Jesus. But C.S. Lewis said this of Jesus. He said in his book, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus. Here's what they would say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis said. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. And he said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. He said you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, and you can, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Because here's the point. If Jesus isn't the Son of God... And the Lord of heaven, he isn't anything. If he's just a great moral teacher, he's nothing. If he's just a great man, he's nothing. If he's not the Son of God uh, and the Lord of heaven, he isn't anything. If Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, then we're still in our sin. Because a man who is just a good man can't forgive the sins of the world. He's the only one, Jesus is the only one that we can go to, uh, to with the blindness of our souls and, and with our hearts. And you remember as Jesus was hanging on the cross when he finished and, and then he arose from the grave giving us victory over death and, and hell and went back to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. The Bible says he sat down when he got there, not because he was tired, but because he was done. Salvation was complete. And that confession is significant because it comes from a personal conviction. It comes uh, as both the confession that saves the soul and the confession that lays the foundation of the church. You see, the very life and survival of a person's soul and of the church as a whole rest upon that simple foundational conviction. But notice that Jesus told his disciples not to share their confession with anybody else. He said, don't go and tell anybody. You're right. I am the Christ, but don't go tell anybody. Why? One of the reasons is because they were just beginning to learn what God's idea of the Messiah was really like. Confession is just the beginning of our spiritual journey. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is that Jesus' time had not yet come because he knows that once he truly is revealed to the people, especially those who are up in opposition to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and, and the Sanhedrin, then he knows that the crucifixion is, is just around the corner. And he's still got work left to do before we get to that point. And so that's the other reason. But confession is just the beginning of our spiritual journey. There's much to study and to learn about Christ after coming to know Him personally. And so we know what Jesus does. But the question for us even tonight, and even as you're watching online, is do you know who Jesus is? Do you know Him personally in your heart and in your life? 
When you trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then you're to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. You're to follow Him. You ever played the kid's game, Follow the Leader? I see older people shaking their heads. I don't see younger people shaking their heads. <laughs> you know, back in the day before smartphones and iPads and Xboxes and video games, kids actually played together. And the way the game was played was that the, that the leader or the head of the line would be chosen, and then you'd line up behind the leader, and the leader would then move around, and everyone uh, had to mimic exactly what the leader did. If you failed to do what the leader did, or, or, or you quit following, you're out of the game. When only one person other than the leader remained, that person, that player, would then become the leader and the game would start all over again. Well, that's kind of what Christianity is all about, only it's not a game. It's life. The first thing Jesus ever said, the first disciples he ever made were these in Mark chapter 1 and verse 17, when Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The first thing Jesus ever asked his disciples to do was follow me. The first thing Jesus has ever asked you to do is to follow him. Trust in him as Lord and Savior and then follow him. The second thing he asked his followers to do was to go find others and to lead them to follow him as well. And, and so simply, Jesus wants his followers to make followers of him. And so the first thing he did in his own ministry, if you remember, was to turn 12 men into followers, into fishers of men. All he asks of us to do is to simply follow him. If we're going to be Christians, the Christians God wants us to be, and if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, then we have to become followers of Jesus, and we have to make followers of Jesus. Because understand this, everybody who claims to be a follower, a follower of Jesus is supposed to be making followers of Jesus. If we're not making followers of Jesus, then we're not really following Jesus. So often in life, we follow people, but people may lead us astray. But when you follow Jesus, he never leads you down the wrong path. When you follow Jesus, you'll never go wrong. Jesus wants you to follow him. And there's a reason why he began his ministry by calling people to follow him and then commanding them to make disciples uh, or followers of him. When you read Mark's gospel, chapter 8 here that we're in is really the pivotal chapter. You could almost divide Mark up into two different parts and chapter 8 is the climax uh, of part 1. So these disciples, they're beginning to, to, if you will, they're beginning to wake up. I mean, we've seen that they've seen these miracles. Jesus has asked them, who do you say that I am? And, and the light bulbs are beginning to come on. It did for Peter, at least partially, where he says, you are the Christ. And, and so uh, they're beginning to wake up to smell the coffee and to recognize the true identity of this man that they've been following. And so Jesus is about to tell them something about every person born into this world that would totally change the way that they saw themselves and totally change the way they saw other people. First notice how all this starts when we come to verse 31 down through verse 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
So there's no mistaking what Jesus is talking about. He says it very clearly, very plainly, Mark says. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now just think about that. I wouldn't want to be Peter. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes coming to Jesus, of all people, to rebuke Jesus. But that's the way Peter was. Peter was always jumping ahead, saying things before he thought about it. And so he, he takes him aside, takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Notice verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And, and so notice that Jesus begins to tell them everything that's about to happen in the days ahead. He's telling them about the, the suffering he's going to experience. He's telling them about uh, the, the, that he's going to be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. And Peter says, come over here, Jesus. Come over here. And he says, Jesus, you can't be telling people that. I mean, we, we want followers to come. We don't want them to be here and well, come follow me and, and I'm a, come follow Jesus and you'll die. Uh, that's not what we, what we need to be talking about. So, so he begins to rebuke Jesus. Uh, all this dying stuff's got to stop. How are we going to get more followers if all we're ever talking about is come follow me and you can die? But then Jesus looks at Peter and he looks at the other disciples and Jesus rebukes Peter. Because Jesus had a bigger purpose for his life and for his death. And all that Peter could see was what was in it for them, what was in it for the disciples. In other words, what we see that Jesus rebukes him and is telling him is that, Peter, you are so earthly-minded that you are of no heavenly good. So then Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for the rest of the disciples. That's kind of weird that this happens in Mark's gospel in this order, in the chronological, as we're trying to go through the scriptures as best we can in the chronology uh, of the life of Jesus, that Jesus in the previous, or Peter in the previous verses, just got through declaring, you are the Christ, now he's rebuking the Christ. He's rebuking the Messiah. That's strange that he's doing that. But that was Peter. That was where he was. He was earthly minded. He was thinking about the Messiah is the one who's an earthly Messiah, not a heavenly Messiah. He's the one that's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and we're going to be free and we're going to be able to establish the kingdom again of Israel. And so Jesus begins to use this to all the rest of the disciples as a teaching moment for them. Listen to these words in verse 36 and verse 37. We'll come back to the other verses in just a moment. But verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now that Greek word for soul there is the word suke or psyche. It's where we get our root word for psychology from. And that word is the essence of who every person is. Jesus says in that simple statement that every person has value and is valuable to God. Uh, the way God measures value and the way the world measures value is, is totally different. Practically every culture uh, will point to certain things and say, if you have these things uh, or if you have those things, if you have this particular item, then you can know that you're valuable. 
Or, or there's a belief that if you work hard or, or if you initiate and accumulate things, you'll be a person of value. Uh, the person with more things is more valuable. Jesus says, though, no one earns value in God's eyes. Everyone is born with value in God's eyes. So, so what you have doesn't make you valuable. Who you are makes you valuable. And so the key point in this passage is, is that in every person, we ought to see the value that God sees. And so I want to share with you in this in the second part of this message uh, tonight here, uh, I want you to see and, and to understand uh, that, that not only the way we should see every person, but why we should want to help every person follow Jesus. Here's the first point of these verses, that we should see every person as spiritually valuable. That's what you see in verse 34 and verse 35, and then again in verse 37. So let's read verse 34 and verse 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, everybody who's hearing this knows Jesus has just got through talking about uh, all the suffering that's going to come, how he's going to be killed, and then after three days rise again. They know when he's talking about a cross, that's an instrument of death. That's an instrument of suffering. And, and so Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, here's what he says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then you read down in verse 37 again, for, who, for what can a man give in return for his soul? So again, the word that is used there for life is the same word that was used for soul, that word suke, psychic. And so Jesus isn't talking here about your physical life primarily. He's talking about your spiritual life. We're not just human beings living in a physical world. We are spiritual beings living in a human world. And so there is a you that we can see, but that's not the real you. That's the shell on the outside. It's the you that we can't see that's the real you. We have a body, but we are also a soul. Adrian Rogers told a story of how uh, when he was a little boy, uh, you, you could buy a, uh, a package of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum for five cents. Uh, it was a, basically a penny a stick, uh, but back in his day that was a lot of money. And he said he remembered riding down the road one day uh, with his dad one time, and his dad gave him for the first time in his life a stick of chewing gum. And he said he got so excited that he unwrapped that, that stick of gum, and, and he threw the gum out the window and held on to the wrapper. He was so excited. You know, most people in this world do the very same thing with their life. The gum is the soul, the wrapper is the body. We tend to be more concerned with the wrapper, more concerned with the physical, and not as concerned about the spiritual, about the soul. Which is why Jesus went on to say there in verse 37, for what can a man give in return? For his soul. Now, it's a rhetorical question there because the answer is nothing. 
What could you possibly give uh, that would equal your soul? There's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul because your soul is spiritually valuable. What is it that makes every soul so valuable? What is it that makes anything valuable? I mean, think about it. It, it, there, There are three things that can give something value. Who made it? What will somebody pay for it? And what will it become? First of all, who made it? Who made our soul? Who who is the one who made the first soul that ever lived? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You heard uh, Miss Ellie share this morning uh, about that illustration that I would do with the kids in one of our Bible stories in the creation Bible story. We, we packed five stories into four days, and that was one of the first was the creation. And, and so it made a little figure, out, a little human figure like uh, out of it, and, and, and I blew on it. Because the Bible says that he brewed the breath of life and, and it came to life. And I said, did it come to life? No. And I said, well, how about you guys blowing on it? And they began to blow on it. Did it come to life? No. Why? Because there's only one who can bring life, and that is God. He is the one who breathed life into us. And man became a living creature. Every person on the face of this planet has been made by God. You know what makes a Stradivarius violin so valuable? It's not the violin itself, it's who made it. Same thing's true of a painting by Picasso or Rembrandt, it's who made it. A sculpture by Michelangelo is valuable because of who made it. What makes every soul that ever breathes a breath on this earth so valuable is that God created that soul. We, can, we conceive children, but God creates the soul of every child. The second way you can tell the value of an object is what will somebody pay for it? So if you're going to sell your house, one of the first things that your real estate agent is going to do is get an appraisal on the value of your house. That'll tell you exactly how valuable your house is because it's whatever somebody is willing to pay for it. And right now they were willing to pay astronomical fees in cash for houses. That's kind of going down a little bit right now. But that's how you determine the value. So the, the story of the Bible isn't just that God made our souls, He paid for our souls. He gave His one and only Son who gave His blood and gave His life so that our souls could be forgiven of our sin and filled with grace and receive eternal life. We are valuable not just because God made us, but because God loves us and God loves us so much He paid for us with the life of his own son. Think about that. If you could put your ear up to the chest of God, you would hear his heartbeat with love for your soul. God doesn't love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. The third thing that gives something value is what it can become. Carbon is valuable because over time it can become a diamond. Oil is valuable because over time it can become energy. Your soul is valuable because God can make it just like Jesus. He can conform you and your body and your life just like Jesus. So not only did God make us, not only did God pay for us, 
Not only does God love us, but God can use us. Michelangelo looked at a block of marble and he said, there's an angel in that block of marble and I'm going to set him free. God sees in every person a soul uh, it, it, that, that is imprisoned, if you will, in, in meaninglessness and selfishness and materialism and insecurity. And God, through Jesus Christ, can set that soul free and turn it into a life of joy and peace, meaning and purpose that can be used for His glory and for the good of others. He sees every one of us as spiritually valuable. Even if you're here tonight or you're watching there online and you think of what value am I, you're valuable to God. God loves you in that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. Secondly, we need to see every person as supremely valuable. Not just as spiritually valuable, but supremely valuable. We see that again in verse 36 and verse 37. Let's read those two verses once again. So, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, sometimes we're amazed at the value that we put on certain things and what we'll pay for other things. One of the most valuable brands in the world is eBay. eBay does over $80 billion worth of business every year. Buyers spend about $2,600 a second buying items off of eBay. An atheist even once sold his soul on eBay and it went for $504. That pales in comparison to the most expensive item ever sold on eBay. It was a yacht called the, called the Giga Yacht that was sold for $168 million on eBay. It shows you just how warped our values are. That we put things of this earth as more valuable than things that are eternal. There's a story about a fire that, that burned down a farmer's barn, and they had the barn insured for 50000 and the wife called the insurance company to collect the money. And the insurance agent said, lady, I'm sorry, we don't give you the money. We just replaced the barn. And she said, well, let me get this straight. She said, if I take out insurance on something, you don't give me the money for it, you just replace it, correct? And he said, yes. She said, well, in that case, cancel the policy I have on my husband. <laughs> she didn't want him replaced. <laughs> Here's how Jesus appraises the value of a soul. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit or lose his soul? And so Jesus asks a, a, a bottom line question and applies an eternal balance sheet to the relative worth of one human soul. So, so we're talking here about net worth. What's left after you calculate the difference between the total assets and the total liabilities? On the assets side of Jesus' balance sheet, he, he has just one entry, the entire world. What if you gain everything this world has to offer? You were to get everything that's out there on eBay. You were to get everything that's out there on Amazon. You were to have it all. All that this world has to offer, that's on one side of the balance sheet. On the lost liability side, he only puts one entry, and that's one soul. And so according to his accounting system, you gain this, and it amounts to an eternal 
loss. In other words, a person could sell their soul for the entire world and they would wind up eternally bankrupt. So he goes on to say in verse 37, that question that he asked a while ago that we looked at, for what can a man give in return for his soul? We saw that was an, a rhetorical question because the answer obviously is nothing. There's absolutely nothing in this world or even the entire world that's equal to the value of one's soul. Just to put that into perspective, the most valuable thing in the world is the United States of America whose net worth has been calculated at over $120 trillion, and that keeps climbing. Yet that doesn't come close to the value of you and me. Really, that's all hypothetical because nobody can gain the whole world. Nobody ever has and nobody ever will. Nobody ever wins and gets everything, uh, wins the championship. Nobody owns all the land. Nobody has all the money. Even if you could gain the whole world, you couldn't keep it. It's kind of like sand going through your fingers. It's just fading away. In reality, we don't really hold the title deed to anything. One day, think about this, somebody else is going to live in your house. Somebody else is going to have your jewelry. Somebody else is going to enjoy that money that you leave. Remember that the true worth of anything is what someone will pay for it. And Jesus Christ proved how valuable your soul is because he gave his life for it. Jesus didn't die for houses and lands and cars and yachts and diamonds and fame or fortune. He died for people. He died for souls. He died for you and he died for me. In the eyes of the one who created the universe, you're the most valuable piece of the puzzle of everything. Here's the third point we need to learn from this passage tonight, is that we should see every person as supernaturally valuable. Go back to verse 34 and verse 35 again, and let's look at some more here. He called the crowd to him with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So understand here, Jesus wants us to follow him. And he wants those of us who follow him to lead others to follow him. There's no question in verse 34 that he makes a strong demand that you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't asking you to sell your soul to him. Because he's already bought it. He's already paid for it. He wants you to give your soul to him because you already belong to him. What, what, that's what hangs in the balance in verse 35 there. Jesus wasn't talking primarily about physical life. He's talking about the supernatural life, that part of you that's going to live forever. So losing your life doesn't primarily mean dying for Jesus physically, though you may. It primarily means living for Jesus. Because when you give your natural life to Jesus, he gives you eternal life. So let me put it to you this way. Here's why you are the most valuable person to God. Because you're the only piece of all of creation's puzzle that's going to live forever. Nothing else on this planet but you, us, are going to live forever. So think about this. When the sun has quit shining... And the moon has quit glowing and the stars have quit twinkling. Your soul is going to be in existence somewhere. 
Your soul is endless. Your soul is timeless. Everything else you can see, everything else you can hear and that you can feel or that you can touch, all of those things are temporal. You are eternal. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, God says this. Uh, he, he says this through Solomon. Solomon said, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. Here's a perfect illustration of everything we've been talking about. God made everything beautiful in its time. Everything in this universe has a date of expiration. But he sets eternity on your heart. Your soul has no expiration date. It's going to live somewhere forever. Either in heaven or in hell forever. That's why even if you could gain the whole world, and even if you could keep the whole world, it would never satisfy you. Because the temporary can never satisfy the eternal. That's why if you lose your soul, it's an irreplaceable loss. You know, they, they can transplant hearts and kidneys and livers, but if you, if you lose your job, you can find another job. If your house burns down, you can rebuild your house. If you total your car, you can buy another car. But you only have one soul, which is irreplaceable. And that's the way that we need to see ourselves. That's the way we need to see other people. There's two things that are true about every person on this planet. God made them, and Jesus paid for them. The only problem is there's a lot who have not accepted that free gift that Jesus offers. With that being true, there's nothing more important in life that you'll do for other people than to lead them to follow the leader named Jesus. It was Jim Elliott, the great missionary who was martyred, who put it best when he said this, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's why the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon said in Proverbs 11, verse 30, whoever wins souls is wise. You're the most valuable person in God's eyes. And so when you see people the way that Jesus sees people, you'll value people the way Jesus values people. And you'll realize the greatest thing that you'll ever do with your soul is to allow God to use it to lead other souls to Him. Notice though one verse we have not looked at. Verse 38. Verse 38 says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed to tell others about him now, the Bible says he'll be ashamed of you then. So begin praying and begin asking God to reveal to you those in your circles of influence that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Share with others. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Why? Because just like Jesus looked at this blind man who needed some extra steps to get to faith and was willing to take those steps, he looked at that man with the value knowing that he had created him and that he loved him and that he had paid the price for him. 
He's done that for you and for me. And we need to look at others around us through the same eyes, through the same way, and to tell others and not be ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, I pray that if there's any who are watching or any who's present here, Lord, maybe they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they need to come tonight to profess that faith in Christ publicly. Or maybe there are those, Lord, uh, who need to come and join this fellowship. Lord, whatever decisions need to be made tonight, I pray that we would just simply call out to you in just the humility of our voice and the humility of where we are and realize, God, I'm nothing. I need you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray there'll be those who will believe in what Christ did, that they'll trust and receive that free gift of grace, knowing they're going to spend eternity somewhere, so why not spend it in heaven with you? Help us, Lord, to trust you. And then those who have trusted, help us, Lord, to be faithful followers, making more followers who are making more followers, because we see them through the eyes of God, that they have value, that you love them. Lord, bless this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand, as we sing, Jesus is tenderly calling. Will you make your way and come as the Lord lays on your heart? Jesus is tenderly calling me, Lord, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love will thou Thank you so much for joining us uh, there online. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again this Wednesday. We'll be meeting again at 6 o'clock. Come join us in person if you can. Uh, but if you can't, join us there on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, our phone live streaming. We'll be back in the book of Revelation, and you're going to receive a wonderful blessing from this week's message. Hope you received a blessing tonight. You have a great week, and we'll see you this Wednesday.